Hello and welcome to episode 113 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. All right, announcements as always. Let's start with the Austin Closure Meetup. So this will, of course, be in Austin, Texas. It's happening Wednesday, November 30th. So now that's the night before the con. So if you happen to be in town on Wednesday, November 30th, this is 2016, of course. Um, because you're going to the cons, you will be around for the uh, Austin Closure Meetup, where Stu Holloway will be talking about Closure Spec. And you can find more about that by searching for Austin Closure Meetup. Of course, the conch itself is happening. Uh, that is happening December 1st through the 3rd. I will be there. In fact, I will be there from the evening of the 28th on, since we are doing closure and datomic training immediately before the conference. Um, I'll be doing the closure uh, class. Um, still places left, I believe, in both classes. Um, certainly check the website closure-conj.org for more information about that. Uh, I want to mention Closure Bridge. Got a couple coming up. Uh, one in London and one in Berlin. I believe those are both on the 25th of November. Uh, so uh, information about Closure Bridge is always available at closurebridge.org. I'd like to remind you, too, that you can go there to donate. A great way to support that organization. Uh, finally, I'll mention um, the FBY, FBY um, conference. So I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but this is a conference being put on by the Belarus uh, Functional Programmers Community. Um, so this is billed as the only functional programming conference in Belarus. I believe it's being held in Minsk. Uh, Billy Meyer, uh, one of the Cognitect family, um, is going to be there speaking, uh, as well as some uh, some other uh, some other friends of the community, like uh, Malcolm uh, Sparks from Juxt. Um, check out the uh, website. That's at fby.by/en. Um, so that's. Uh, that's going to have a lot of good stuff on both front end and back end, uh, closure stuff, Scala stuff, closure script, pure script, JavaScript, TypeScript, all sorts of tasty, tasty functional programming goodness. Um, so check that out if you happen to be in or have the ability to get to uh, to Minsk. Um, looks like it might be a good conference, or looks like it will be a good conference, I should say. Uh, that's about all I think I have for announcements, so we'll go ahead. We will go on. This will be episode 113 of the Cognicast. off how about you sure cool all right let's go then well hello everyone welcome today is monday october 31st 2016 that would be halloween so welcome to a very spooky episode of the cognicast and welcome especially to our guest today uh paul stadig welcome to the show paul thanks um so we actually have quite a few things to talk about today uh, but of course, we always start the show with one particular question, a question about art and specifically about our guests, some experience uh, that our guest has had of art, whatever that might mean to them. So, Paul, has you picked something out that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, th I think um, the experience I had with art that I wanted to relate was actually a... Um, a closure con talk by Chris Ford in 2012, 
Actually, I think he gave it at Lambda Jam, too. I think there's a couple of um, recordings of it out on the internet there. But um, it was it was called Functional Composition, and he was talking about um, representing music using code, essentially. And um, I just, I remember it, it really it really affected me. I thought it was, a, it's an excellent talk. I mean, people should go, go listen to it. But the idea of like representing music with code was just really interesting to me. And I mean, I've, I've played instruments before. Um, and as, as a Christian, like for me, the experience of art always kind of connects with my, my worldview. And like, especially like this idea that there's, it, it was very interesting to me that there's like this idea of music. There's like um, this music that can be represented e- either in sheet music or in in code, and then can be manipulated as code with function composition and all these things. And it was just, it was a really interesting concept that um, kind of set me off thinking about um, lots of related concepts in how you can represent music or or visual arts with code, and it was just a really... Um, I, I was actually moved to tears at the end of his talk. I mean, it was just very beautiful. He kind of builds up music from basic concepts, and it was just... It was really great. Yeah, I was there, too, and it was... It is a really, really good talk. I mean, he's an excellent speaker, period. He picked an interesting topic, and uh, that unification of, of code and art uh, was was very, very cool. I totally agree. He he gave a talk at Strange Loop just recently. Yeah. I don't know if right, you saw I that was, one. I was actually going to say probably my second experience with art was uh, the talk he gave actually uh, in 2016 at Strange Zoop on African polyphony and polyrhythm, which uh, was also interesting for, for me because it kind of challenged the first experience I had, which uh, I came away from the first talk thinking like, wow, this is great. Like we can just like represent all kinds of music as code and all this. And then, but in his um, Strange Zoop talk, he uh, he talks about trying to um, represent um, some some different kinds of African music using um, using code and, and it was based off of a book he'd read and um, it was it's just really interesting because there there definitely um, I mean my experience with music is mostly like the European tradition and um, trying to represent um, this African music using European sheet music was really quite a challenge and. Um, and also, there, there, there's a human element to it. There's like cultural significance to music that you can't represent with code, and so it was that was also kind of an interesting um, experience as well. Yeah, I, I was I was there in the audience for it, and I have to say he did a really amazing job of blending um, the cultural aspects um, in a in a as you said, challenging is the right word way, but in the good sense of that. Uh, but also the technical and just the musical portion. It was a very very cool talk too. He's a great guy. Yeah, I think both of those talks are, I mean, well worth listening to. I'd recommend yeah. both highly. Awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, so, you know, um, as much as it would be awesome to just for us both to gush being Chris Ford fanboys the whole <laughs> hour or whatever, um, I think we should talk about you um, because you've done some interesting things. You've been in the closure community for quite a while now. Um, I mean, it's increasingly yeah. rare that I run into people that have been in as long or longer than me, which is a good sign. I mean, because it's, it's a sign of a healthy community that we're, we're bringing in new people and it's growing. But uh, you've certainly been around for, for quite yeah. a while. How long, how long have you been around in the closure community? Well, so it depends how you count, right? But I think I started playing with it in, I want to say 2008, but I'd have to go look. Um, but I, I, started at, uh, I started at what was then Relevance in 2010. So that, was, that would definitely be my official um, 
you know, I'm now a professional closure programmer start. Yeah, I was uh, I was taking um, some graduate classes, um, uh, pursuing a master's degree in computer science, and one of my classmates kind of pointed. We we were doing some projects in Common Lisp. We did we wrote a naive Bayes uh, spam filter in Common Lisp, and one of my classmates uh, was like, "Hey, this list, this thing's kind of cool. There's like this Lisp for the JVM." I remember seeing it. I was like, "Oh yeah, it's kind of interesting. Whatever." I that must have been. I don't know if that was even 2007 or 2008. Um, I think it might have been 2007 because I think I, I started kind of actually playing with Closure in 2008, and then I joined uh, Sony in, in 2009, working full time doing Closure development. Um, so, which was cool, and so I've been involved uh, since then, at least I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and I met while you were still at Sony, and, and you know uh, we've become friends. We see each other a lot. The, the joke, of course, is that <laughs> many people, um, many people actually have said that you and I look a fair amount alike to the extent where I think we've both been at conferences and had people come up to us yeah. expecting we were the other person. Now, there was one in particular, I won't say who it was, but one of your colleagues like ran up to me and said, oh, hey, I've been looking for you, blah, 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 went on for about five seconds and then just stopped and said, oh, never mind, <laughs> and walked away. And I knew exactly what had happened by that point. I, so. I, think, uh, it's, I think it's more common for people to confuse me for you than you for me, because I'm not as prominent in the community. But, I, but I, I do kind of relish, I heard the story that when you started at Relevance, they, someone actually thought you'd hired me. Or oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yep, absolutely so true. I won't out that person either, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I always thought we used to, that you and I, we, we kicked this idea around, we haven't made it happen yet, where... And maybe I'm ruining the surprise, but I always thought we should do a conference talk where, you know, one of us starts on stage and then like at some point walks behind something and the other person comes out and picks up as if nothing had happened and continues the talk to see if anybody would, uh, yeah. would notice. Be like one of those magic shows with two doors and someone walks in one and comes out the other. Exactly. Yeah. A very, very, very obscure joke that, <laughs> that you and I would enjoy greatly. Um yeah, but anyway, so so you have been around for a long time. You've done quite a few um, interesting and cool things. I guess um, maybe we'll go reverse chronologically, though, because you've done one pretty recently that was the proximate cause. I mean, we've been, you know you certainly as being who you are, we it would make sense for us to have had you on any number of times before now. But I saw that you'd put out a book, and I was like, oh right, yeah, that might be a great excuse. Not that we really need one to have. Uh, Paul on the show to talk about that. So um, maybe I'll just throw it to you, and you can explain to us what this book is about, how you came to write it, who it's for, that type of thing. Yeah, I. Um, it wasn't really well thought out, actually. I. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Uh, it really came about because I was submitting a talk to the Conj for this year, uh, 2016, which uh, was not accepted, which is fine, but. Um, I I started kind of fleshing out the outline for that talk and and I I thought I don't know this could make like a decent blog post or like a little short ebook you know whatever so so I so I I kind of fleshed it out into an ebook and um, it was my first experience working with LeanPub and it's actually um, available on Amazon as well through the Kindle Direct Publishing uh, system and so that was it was an interesting experience but I mean the the person I've written it for is I, I feel like there's uh, there's kind of a gap in the market for closure. There's there's um, and I use the market the term market loosely. Uh, the uh, there's like plenty of introductory tutorials how to get started, how to set up Emacs or Cursive or something, and you know get connected to Repl and like how you know 
integers and floating points and like how to write functions. Then there's like there there's a certainly a lot of material where if you want to go deep on things like core async or uh, core logic or something, you can like go down into the guts of like those things. But th there's nothing really, or uh, it seemed to me there wasn't a lot in the middle there where maybe someone who has actually used Clojure a little bit, is a little familiar with the, the language, um, has some familiarity with the different tools it provides you, but they want to build like a real system. And there's there's obvious trade-offs to different types of designs and using different the different um, tools in Clojure. So w what I was trying to target was that person who has some moderate experience in Clojure, hasn't written a lot of like large systems or projects, and wants to know, like, hey, I'm trying to write a service abstraction. What's the best tools from Clojure to like do that or whatever? And so that was kind of where I was going. So the book's called Clojure Polymorphism. Um, and I just kind of explored the theme of polymorph polymorphism in Clojure, what the different tools are. And, and I did it through some real examples, real code, working through um, kind of iteratively changing things, trying different approaches, solving the same problem several different ways so you can kind of see it from different perspectives and how the different tools affect the solutions and what the trade-offs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so <laughs> for once, I'm actually somewhat prepared for an interview. Um, <laughs> and I actually read your book, and it, it's quite good, and I, I encourage people to, um, to go and check it out. And, and I have to say, I think my opinion of the available materials lines up very well with yours. I think that there is a an excellent, um, rich selection of intro material. Uh, there, are, there are a, a smaller, like understandably smaller selection of, of good advanced stuff. Um, I, I'm thinking of, for example, of Joy of Closure. I think is a maybe the prototypical um, mm -hmm. advanced closures book. Great book. Um, but I agree. I think, although I do believe that there are some some things in the middle, and your book is is an excellent example of this. It's 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 not proportional, right? Like there should be a lot more of it because we know that there are a lot of people that are coming to closure. When you look at the attendance numbers at the conference, that's where every year we have you know two three hundred new people who have actually flown <laughs> somewhere to be at this conference. So we know that there are people coming in, and those people very clearly are going to need help with. Things like polymorphism, and uh, you know, I, I think in your book you focus a lot on, and you can expand on this. I, I feel like you focus a lot on trade-offs, and I think that's key. Yeah. Is that yeah. is, you, is that was that an effort on your yeah, part? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my 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 idea was kind of that it's it's kind of like a comparative architecture course. Like you can see the same problem solved several different ways, and you can see the trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's key because it's um. You know, there's a there's an old old joke that says, "Who was it that said, uh, Lisp programmers know the value of everything and the cost of nothing, or something along those lines?" But I think that's really a comment on human nature, which is that when you're presented with a tool, it's very easy to see what the tool does for you, but not easy to see the ways in which the tool constrains you. And so I think trade-offs and comparisons like that are super important. Yeah, and it's you know, I mean, obviously, performance is a a big trade off, and a lot of times that's kind of more prominent for people. But there are other trade offs too: the uh, the ease of understanding system or extending a system, and you know, there's there's definitely other types of trade offs that you you can consider and you want to consider. Now, I will say, um, I I think you kind of echoed this that there there doesn't seem to be a as many resources in that kind of middle area as there are on the beginning and kind of advanced ends. But I did, I did find um, a book called 
Closure Applied, uh, which is an excellent book. Uh, having having looked at it, kind of doing my market research to see what's what kind of um, uh, resources are available out there, I, I ran across that book, which I had not seen before. But it's uh, that's a great book, and it's kind of along the same vein of uh, so you know so you have closure like. You have these sharp tools, like how do you use them? What what are the trade-offs for different ways to design systems? Yeah, so this is uh, this is Ben Van Gross and Alec, Alex Miller's book. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. It's. I mean, I I have to be honest. I haven't read the whole thing, but um, there's just too many closure books anymore for me to have to have read them all. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I I think you know those two definitely understand the things we're talking about, and I I would you know I, the other one I would maybe plus one is um. The cookbook, it's not quite the same thing, but I feel like it's its in the same general space. It's not going to give somebody the same, um, you know, sort of grounded understanding that I feel like you were going for, and we'll come back to what I mean right. by that in a minute. But I do feel like it's about, okay, you know the language. Let's, let's lift you up to the point where you can start building things and not have to work out from first principles how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I, I do, I, I, I think um, I agree with what you're saying. I, I, I saw um, cookbooks as a, a useful tool. And I don't mean to disparage cookbooks at all. I mean, I think they're a useful tool um, to give you patterns or, or, or you know, help you get started with things. Or, or if you want to look up like how do I talk to a website using CLJ HTTP or something, you, know, you can look it up. I, what, what I was aiming for was not so much a cookbook approach as like again, kind of looking at the same problem solved with different tools and then drawing some principles from that. And you can take those principles and apply them in different ways. And so it's not so much a cookbook where it's like, here's a chunk of code you can drop in, but more kind of a comparative, um, you know, look at the, the tools and, and approaches and trade-offs. Yeah, I think they're very much complementary approaches. I mean, they're, they're quite different in what they achieve. And I think, so let's actually walk through a little bit, um, you know, kind of take us through this, the story of the book here. I mean, because you really do have a pretty clear path where you, you build up and, and, and bring people along and say, okay, we're going to start with this and then move to this. So I wonder if you could maybe uh, give us a bit of a tour of the book. Yeah, there's really kind of like, um, I guess you could say like three main sections. Um, there's there's a, a chapter on service abstraction, uh, and I use that as an example. That's my example that I... Uh, I uh, approach from uh, different tools and closures. So we look at how to implement a service abstraction with like with plain functions, with um, with a hash map that has functions in it that you can pull out as kind of a way of dispatching with um, uh, you know, protocols and what the trade-offs are for those. And then there's another another section, uh, another chapter where I, I look at um, data transformation because that's kind of an, another common use of polymorphism that I've seen in my experiences. You have this data, like you want to convert it to JSON or from JSON or whatever. And so a lot of times what you want to do is have some transformation function like to JSON that you want to extend to floats and ints and strings and various different data structures. And so that that function is polymorphic. You want to define it for all those different types. So that that's another chapter kind of looking at, at that pro, um, that problem and how to approach it. And then there's um there's a there's another chapter that is kind of JVM specific, and talks about some some gotchas that I've run across in my experience using Closure 
um, in the vein of polymorphism on, on the JVM, because there are a couple of performance considerations and things to think about. In, in addition, that's kind of the main body of the book. There is also an, a kind of an introductory chapter that just talks about poly, what is polymorphism and um, a brief overview of what the tools are in closure for polymorphism. I don't go into a lot of detail about the implementation of things like protocols or things. Uh, I, I, again, I kind of assume people kind of are aware of the tools and, and generally how to use them and have even used them a little bit, but um, you know, want to see these problems and different ways of approaching them and kind of learn some design principles from them. Yeah. I, I, uh, so this is um, not a long book. I mean, you, uh, mm -mm. you know, uh, we, what I said, I actually read the whole thing, but it took me maybe 25 minutes. I mean, it was, there's a good amount of meat there uh, for sure, but it's, I don't even know how many. Pages. I mean, it's like, like pages. thirty. I think it's like thirty-one pages. I, it depends. You know, it's it's an ebook. Um, but yeah, I'm, my 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 goal was not to write something long. It's 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 hopefully it's short, but like you said, packed with information, mm -hmm. and it's not a long read. And it's you know, it's relatively cheap. It's uh, in fact, I have a coupon code for people. Maybe I can mention that later. Or I don't know, but um, sure. Uh, mention it now. I mean, it'll wind up in the transcript too. So okay. uh, either way. Yeah. So, uh, so if, any, if anybody's listening to this and is interested in the book, um, as I said, it's, it's available on Amazon. You can search for it, Closure Polymorphism. It's also available on LeanPub and I have a coupon for LeanPub. I created like a really cool URL for it using the bit.ly URL shortener. So it's bit.ly slash closure poly all one word, lowercase, and that'll send you straight to the the book page with that coupon code applied. Saves you thirty percent if you're interested in checking it out. Very cool. Yeah, people should pick it up. It's, I mean, it like you say. I don't know. I mean, um, so I'm just trying to give an example of something that that uh, that I when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, I totally forgot about that. And to be honest, I never had completely thought about it, even though I was aware of it. So this was the thing where you're talking about the fact that there's a difference when you extend a protocol mm -hmm. to a record after the fact versus declaring that the record supports the protocol in the body of the def record and that there's a, a potentially significant, I mean, it's all relative uh, performance difference between those two approaches. I was like, oh, that's right. I had forgotten about that. So I think... Um, and I don't know if you want to expand on that at all, but the, but there's definitely things in there where even somebody that's been doing closure for quite a while can read the book and come away with it with a with a better understanding or at least a refreshed understanding of mm -hmm. the things that we deal with all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's in the the JVM kind of gotchas chapter, and um, I mean it has to do, that has to do with the way uh, protocols are extended to classes. So when you extend outside of a def record form, or if you extend to like a core class, like say Java Lang integer or something. Um, that the dispatch actually happens through a dispatch table in the protocol function. And so that's kind of, um, that's above the level of the JVM's actual dispatch on interfaces, if you're calling Java code. Um, so it's, it's slower. If you, if you extend a protocol in a def record form, then the class that's, gen the def record class that's generated actually implements an interface that's part of the protocol. And so when you invoke that thing, it goes through the Java interface dispatch at, at a much lower level in the JVM. So it's it's faster. And so it, it does make a difference. And so there's definitely a trade-off there between performance and, I guess, expressivity and how you write your code. Sometimes you might want to extend something 
in the core library or, or outside of a deaf record form, but there's definitely a, a trade-off to be aware of there. Mm-hmm. That's only in the JVM, though. On uh, ClojureScript, that's, there's not the same, a similar penalty. Yeah, no, that was a good one, definitely, and there's other things like that there as well. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my thought was, again, just a short book. Uh, I've, I'd like to write more you know, in, the, in the same uh, vein, exploring different themes other than polymorphism. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I think you, know, you, you make that pretty clear in the material in and surrounding the book that um, this is potentially, you know, <laughs> Paul on Closure Volume 1, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe a right. less... Uh, less ambitious title, I'm not sure, but um, but I, I mean, I would certainly read that series. That that would be great. What, what, so, what was your, I guess, kind of, what was your experience of writing the book, uh, and then carry that through to what you think about continuing? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, the way it came about, I was kind of already thinking of this this talk for the closure conj, and I don't know, it it, I it. Happened pretty quickly. I mean, I just kind of, it just flowed. You know, I wrote the book, so uh, I don't, I don't know that the next one would necessarily go so easily. And I, you know, I've, I've been kind of uh, thinking through different topics. I actually had this idea um, for doing one on optimization, optimizing closure code. Hmm. I, and I, I, the other day at work, um, someone was complaining about something they were trying to do and couldn't write the, find the right function for it or something. And I, I said, well, you know what? It sounds like what you actually need is not a function. You need a, a data structure. You need a heap data structure because you want to basically have all these items that have, say, a cost to them. You want to pull the lowest cost item out first and then the next lowest cost and so forth. And so a, a heap would be ideal for that. But I was like, but I don't really know of any heap implementations for closure offhand. Um, so I thought, well, it, it would be interesting to take that as an example and uh, write a heap data structure that can integrate into closure and then um, and then optimize it and tune it after it's been written because obviously first pass would probably be not that performant uh, and I, I don't know if that would work as a as a book thought about maybe some YouTube videos like I, I don't know but yeah I, I mean there I've, I've uh, kind of noodled around some on some other ideas uh, so if anybody has any that they would particularly like to see covered certainly let me know Awesome. Well, prepare for a tweet storm because I think people uh, would love to hear more. Um, I mean, I can think of a few off the top of my head, things like, uh, you know, just kind of in this vein of what is somebody who has come to the language that can, that can write programs in the sense of, you know, taking the ideas that they've had in other languages and expressing them in, in closure, but not necessarily idiomatically or um, maybe going beyond that to, you know, in, in a way that's uh, congruent with the philosophy of closure. So I could imagine, for instance, one of the things that people struggle with when they start out is state. You know, mm-hmm. I've got this program and I write it in closure and it looks like Java to some degree where there's like 20 atoms and I'm, everything I do, I do by, you know, mutating those atoms. And it's like, well, okay, it's not usually how we do things. There's other way to structure. So that would be one area where I could see. Um, another one um, that I think is a great intermediate topic, even though Arguably, it's a beginner topic. Is um, uh, names namespacing right? Or code organization. I feel like right. that's one that uh, people get hung up on a bit. 
Um, yeah, namespacing, uh, state, state and or concurrency, mm-hmm. uh, something I considered. Um, another one is, is error handling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried as much as I could in closure polymorphism to, to write in a way that the principles that we're learning apply both to closure and closure script. Air handling is a little more complicated because it tends to be more platform specific. But, but certainly, I mean, there have been times where I've interacted with other people at work who are like, "Well, how do I like signal errors or catch errors or whatever?" And there's there's different approaches to that too that have their own trade offs. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, we will definitely um, be interested in tracking your further writings on on this or any other topic. Um, you know, you mentioned at work, and I am embarrassed to admit that I have lost track of where you're working now. We've known each other since you were at Sony, and, yeah. um, and you're not at Sony, any- Sony anymore. Where are you working these days? I'm at a company called Looking Glass that's based in Baltimore, and so we're in the network security space. Um, before that, I was at a company called Outpace, um, which was you know was a great experience because we... I got to work with a lot. I mean, Outpace was um, ended up doing a lot of hiring and hiring some really great people. I mean, I got to work with Karen Meyer. I think she um, she's a she a cognic. Yeah, cognic she's a cognic now. now. Yep, yep. Uh, as well as uh, lots of other people um, at at Outpace as well. But um, and then before that, Sony, which also it was a great team. And, and Looking Glass has a great team too. Uh, they're based in Baltimore. I, I work from home. I, I've been working remotely for companies since well, since Sony and since about two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually something we should talk about in a minute. I just want to mention that um, it's funny. I mean, it is a big world now compared to what it used to be, but it's still a small world. You know, you've worked with uh, Karen Meyer, who's at Cognitect. Uh, Devin Walters was also at um, mm-hmm. Outpace, and he's yep. been a guest on the show. And we've he and I have worked together on a bunch of different things. And Looking yeah, Glass, great. You know, we've we've done a bunch of work with Looking Glass as well, and I actually taught a closure class at a company that Looking Glass had acquired <laughs> recently. So over in yeah, I yeah, I I I, uh, I was working with Tim Baldridge for a little bit at first at Looking Glass, and and then uh, also someone else who I think was working with Cognitech, um, Creighton Kirkendall, who mm-hmm. actually was out outpace, and I didn't know I was going to work with him at Looking Glass until I started at Looking Glass, and I saw his name in the chat list, and I was like, "Hey, that's funny." Yep, so, it's yeah. funny. Yeah, it's it's a it's a a small world, although it seems to be getting bigger. I I'm surprised, uh, having been involved in working as a, pr- a professional closure programmer essentially since 2009, I'm surprised sometimes to hear of some companies. I'm like, oh well, they're doing closure too. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same here. Um, we're especially at the conferences. Um, um, right. So, oh yeah, I wanted to talk to you about uh, working remotely. This is something that we find people are very interested in. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we've had people request shows on it before. We've done shows on it, but I think there's always something more to say because as more and more jobs uh, in the world become information jobs. Um, you know, and and not like you're in some place actually physically processing bits or responding to events in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think this is something people are interested in, and it's obviously transformative both for an individual's life um, to a greater or lesser degree. I think maybe a greater for you. We'll get you to talk about that in a minute. Um, 
but also for the world. I mean, things like where people live, you know, population density, these things are all in, in, impacted to some degree by um, the ability of companies and their propensity for hiring remote people. So I don't know if you have any general advice or particulars of your experience you'd like to share, but I would love to hear what your take on the remote life is. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I have opinions about that. I mean, ha- having worked remotely for a while, and I, I um, well, I mean, one thing is I draw I draw a distinction between the idea of working remotely versus working on a distributed team. I, I think those are uh, qualitatively different. Um, you know, when you, when you're like a remote person working for a company that has an office somewhere and everybody else goes into the office, that, that's a different experience than it is if you have a distributed team where essentially, say, you don't have an office and everybody works not necessarily from home but wherever they want to work from. I mean, I. I've worked with people who like go into a coffee shop every day, you know, you don't have to necessarily work from home, but, um, but yeah, the flexibility to kind of decide where you want to work is, is interesting. And, and, uh, like you said, it has, uh, implications, uh, personally. I mean, for one, uh, about three years ago, my family uh, actually moved. We were in, in Northern Virginia near the DC area and we moved down into central Virginia because we, kind of like that area better um there's not to go into like too much details but like i mean we saw in the future our families kind of moving down that area too so we want to be closer to them and i you know being able to move to another place because you like that place and not have to change jobs it's kind of cool you know that's it's kind of a nice thing to be able to do so um i don't think i don't think working remotely works uh for everybody or certainly not for every profession. Uh, like you said, it's probably more information-related professions, programming, writing, things like that. But um, but even even someone who's a programmer or a writer may not necessarily enjoy working remotely, and and I think that's fine. But I, I think it is a if you embrace it as kind of a new um, paradigm of working. And not just as like a remote person in, with an office and kind of go the distributed team route. Uh, there's lots of great tools to help that work well. And I think it can work really well. Um, and it has it has a, you know, a great impact, I think, on the company who can hire uh, people um, from essentially anywhere. Uh, I put some limitations on that. I mean, if you're if you're working, especially if you're if you're doing any kind of pair programming, time zones matter. Um so that that's that's kind of a limitation on on the hiring, but but essentially you don't have to limit yourself to one particular city where you're hiring, um, and and obviously like mentioned it has you know, benefits for employees and and um, kind of deciding where you want to live. But there there are there are definitely different ways of of doing distributed teams or remote work, and um, I I for me I think one essential component is. Uh, having meetups every once in a while. Um, I think there's definitely benefit to face-to-face contact for, I don't know, just camaraderie or morale or uh, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes there are are tasks that are easy, easier to accomplish face-to-face too. So uh, typically in companies I've worked at, we'll have a meetup, you know, th- maybe two, three, four times a year, once a quarter, say, and um, part of that will be like brainstorming on a whiteboard or whatever, um, s- some kinds of things that might be a little easier to do in person. Um, 
but but I think the the meetups kind of an essential part of it. I, I think t- to me, if I were, if I were to say like what are the kind of essential components of distributed teams, I think having um, regular meetups. I think pair programming is is definitely very helpful, and um, I think having having an open communication system, some kind of chat that, where there's transparency and people can see what people are talking about. Because you miss out on hallway conversations and things, um, not being in an office. But I think you can kind of recreate that to some extent by just having you know, open chat channels where people can come and go. Or if like they want to go back and reread some back chat in a channel or something, there, there's more access to information that way. So I think those those are important components of a distributed team. Yeah, and that lines up a lot with our experience and with the experience of other people we've talked to. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't mind getting your take, because you've done this a few times now, um, on what particular tools and practices. I mean, you mentioned a few generally, chat, whatnot. But, but I'm interested in things, for instance, um, really detailed things like, what do you use for whiteboarding? I mean, when you're, when you're distributed, because that one is one that I don't feel like I've cracked yet. Um, uh, and then uh, screen sharing is another one where every there's actually a bunch of solutions that work pretty well now, but yeah. I'm 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 curious to hear what you found that works the best at least for you. Yeah, the tools have changed over the years. I mean, when I was at Sony, and it was most it's mostly an audio based culture there. So we did a lot of Skype and a lot of audio calls, and we we would have stand ups. Which again, I guess I missed that. I think that's another important component is having a stand up every day. It helps keep people on track. But we do stand-ups with Skype. Um, yeah, we. I, um, and there, we tended to to mostly use chats, or if we wanted to do some kind of design, we might pair on it and write actually write up a design document. So there wasn't a lot of whiteboarding. But I mean, you can get creative. I mean, at Outpace, there were people who had Outpace was a more video-based culture there, so there was a lot of um, video calls and video pairing. And, and people would get kind of creative and have a couple of video cameras, and one of which could be pointed straight down their desk, and they can just draw, you know, things. And it's not as easy to collaborate that way. At least you can see if someone's trying to explain something and wants to draw some pictures. That's helpful. Uh, we experimented with some uh, some whiteboarding. I, I think at Outpace. I, I forget um, exactly what tools, but we uh, we, um, we started using Hangouts a lot there, uh, and then eventually moved to Zoom, which is which is a pretty solid um, video conferencing and, and also screen sharing tool. Um, as far as chat, it's Sony, and we did a lot of IRC, which I kind of like. I mean, I think it's you know it's a standard and it's been around forever, and you can get tools um, and clients and things to work with IRC. But not everybody's comfortable with that. And more recently, Slack's been kind of um, becoming a, a more de facto tool for for chat purposes. Um, IRC is a little better in the sense that it's more open, um, I guess, than Slack necessarily, but but Slack does keep the history, and, and IRC doesn't, unless you set something up to capture uh, back chats. You can go back and replay things, and you can't really see what what um, what people had been talking about in the past. Yeah, that's actually something I really like about uh, uh, chat. As you say, it's not incompatible with IRC, but the Slack experiences that out of the box. Um, interestingly, when I was at RoomKey a couple years ago, they switched mm, literally overnight from IRC to Slack <laughs> and didn't go back. And they, they quite liked that. But I, um, 
I and I like Slack. I think it's good a good program. Um, it, at least in terms of the user experience, it's a good program. But uh, Slack, Slack has some options. I mean, it does have an IRC bridge. It has the native client, um, the web client. There's also uh, HipChat. You know, we I've used that, and we use HipChat a lot more at Looking Glass these days. Um, so that I mean, that's an option too. There and you know there there are trade offs between these tools, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, those are those are kind of some more concrete examples of things that that I've seen used. So I'm bummed that you haven't cracked the uh, the whiteboarding um, problem because that that one feels like one that is a missing tool for me at least. Although the idea of using two cameras, that's brilliant. <laughs> I have to start doing that. That's fantastic. I mean, even before that, I would do like if I was trying to explain something to somebody. I, I, I since I've from the day that I started working from home, first thing I did was I went out and I bought one of these like print centers. It's like a laser printer slash scanner slash copier. It's also also useful just around the house because like we homeschool and so like a lot of times we want to copy something or whatever. But so I would I would like draw a little diagram, scan it in, and then like you know email it or whatever, which is like a s- slower way of doing it. But yeah, having an extra camera, I, I think I feel like there was there was some whiteboarding tool we experimented with like whiteboard.io or I, I have no idea something like that that but I, I don't know I mean honestly uh, I don't feel like we've had a lot of need for whiteboarding uh, maybe it just depends on on the company or the person maybe you like to just maybe you like to doodle more on whiteboards I, we tend to do whiteboarding in person at meetups uh, usually yeah, so that's interesting, right? Because I, I wonder to what extent, you know, we let our thought processes be shaped by the available tools. This is something I've been thinking about in a bunch of contexts. You just mentioned one. It's like, well, if we're in the same room together and there's a whiteboard, I'm very likely to pick up a marker and go to it and start drawing. But if I'm on a call, even if it's a video call with you and we're trying to kick an idea around, I'm less likely to do that. And so I feel like that must be because uh, I don't think the conversation is different. I think it's that there is a a barrier that um, I'm instinctively or unconsciously avoiding climbing to get to get to the the end result, and I think in particular that that um, that type of barrier is manifest in closure tooling itself. All right, to be careful not to say the language. And what do I mean by that? Specifically, that uh, we oftentimes work with these data structures. You know, everybody that's done any closure for more than a few months has had a data structure that is a deeply nested map of vectors of maps of vectors with keyword keys, and you know, like this really complicated thing, um, or at least nested thing, even if it's not complicated. And like the default experience uh, uh, in the tooling is to print it, which is awesome, right? Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Having that is so much better than, oh, I've got a pile of objects and no way to look at that. Although, you know, most debuggers are going to give you a way to, you know, expand that out hierarchically. So, you know, credit there. Um, But I feel like what I want is something richer, you know, something where I can really visualize, make use of that huge what is it, the prefrontal cortex, whatever the visual center of your brain oh. is, that's this thing that, that is really good at processing visual information. Make use of that to throw things up on the screen and sort through them in a way that um, that I at least find more difficult when it is a, you know, 10 screens full of text, if that makes any sense. Yeah, now, you know, I, I could be wrong about this. I seem to remember, I've never used it, but from very early on, like even the 1.0 days in Clojure, I think, wasn't there like some kind of inspector? yes. It would pop up a swing window, and you could like actually expand 
the parts of your data structure or yep, something. Yep, yep, and yeah. it still exists. I mean, just like almost everything in Closure, yeah, you know, it doesn't go away. I do remember. So I, I I'm speaking from mostly ignorance here. I remember trying it and and it not being the thing that I'm hoping for. Which you know, how, how can I be more vague than that, right? But <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you're right. I mean, that's something that I should go back to and look at it and see like where it differs from what it is I think I want, or maybe it's just a matter of familiarity, but I, I do feel like my process would be improved by incorporating a better visualization experience. Just to be fair, I think people are doing this, right? I mean, um, I don't use cursive just because I'm a hardened Emacs user, not because I don't think it's a good tool. I actually think Colin's doing great work, um, but I don't use it, so I don't know what the tools are there. And then... Um, I think if you look at some of the stuff like Kovas was doing with Session and some of the other interactive yeah, repl yeah. stuff, that stuff's also super promising. Yeah, yeah, no, those are those are definitely cool. And, and I, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm I'm kind of like, I'm an Emacs user. I'm and I've been doing Closure for a while, where we didn't necessarily have all these tools. Now, I'll, I'll say that, but if we want to go back to like the first thing that I ever did with Closure. Um, I, first thing I ever did with Closure was to try to get Closure running on Terracotta, which is this. Um, shared memory system, distributed memory system for the JVM, where you can have several JVMs running on different network nodes that share the same heap, essentially. And um, I, I remember uh, one of the things I did was hook up a Java debugger to the JVM. Um, because since it's on the JVM and Clojure compiles a bytecode, you can do that, which I think was brilliant, you know. And so I and one of the first things I ever did with Clojure was step through the code with a Java debugger, where I would step from a Clojure, a line of Clojure code to a line of Clojure code to a line of Java code, back to a line of Clojure code. So you know, I mean, that, certainly in the JVM, that kind of debugger exists now. It's maybe not perfect because it's possibly more oriented towards Java, but certainly you can step through code. Uh, I, I and I, I tend to I tend to go the the Printlin route for debugging. You know, mm -hmm. I just like add a bunch of Printlins everywhere, which is definitely a suboptimal way to debug. Well, there's your next book, debugging. Yeah, right. I think that would actually be. I'd really have to useful. actually learn to do it right, though. That's a great excuse, though, right? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I think well, that's actually a good question for you. So when you were writing the book, um, you know, they say the best way to learn is to teach, and that's been my experience that I always learn something when when I go to teach it, um, did you learn anything that you didn't know or that, or that you got a new perspective on in the course of writing your book? Yeah, I certainly, I mean, I, having come to Clojure early, I am much more comfortable with the JVM side of Clojure than the Clojure script side. And so, uh, I, I, I definitely learned a few things about, about Clojure script. Um, I mean, for one thing, I, I, I thought the, the penalty for, uh, extending a protocol outside of the def record might actually be a penalty in closure script too, but I found that wasn't. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that is definitely something where I'm still learning is, is, uh, is closure script. I, I, I find closure script is, I mean, there's no other language I'd rather write in if I have to target JavaScript than closure script. But I, I find for me coming from closure, it's like just familiar enough, but there's differences and, Generally, the differences uh, come down to ecosystem and library kind of things, which um, aren't necessarily closure script problems. But yeah, I'm I'm still kind of getting my legs under me for closure script. Yeah, I am too. And I, the thing that's really been, but I actually have been spending a lot of time in that space in my spare time projects, 
Um, and the thing that's really been pushing me over that way is um, visualization. I mean, and I, that, this is coming back to this theme, and it's one of the reasons I'm so interested in it, is that, you, you know, the, the, the world is pretty different between the JVM and uh, the, the JavaScript runtime world in terms of how you present information. Obviously, the king of visualization tools in the JavaScript world is the browser, right? And the things mm-hmm. that you can do with that, and oh man, having ClojureScript for that is so interesting. Um, so very briefly, I have a tool, it's a weather, it's a weather simulator, it, it generates weather, but it doesn't really matter, it's this algorithm. And it generates weather? It, well, not in the real world, <laughs> right? It's, it's this, it, it generates weather data, I should say, or weather-like data would probably be a better way to put it. But, oh, okay. Uh, right, makes... so like, you run it and you can see, oh, look, there's, you know, there's a storm here and it's moving this way and over time it dissipates, that type of thing. Um, it doesn't matter. It's some algorithm. And you know, so I've got that algorithm and it's all in CLJC files. And so I can you know, run a REPL in the JVM and play with it all I want in that environment. And then, oh, now I'm going to write a visualization layer in uh, the browser and uh, you know, of course it renders as HTML. But now I'd like to have a um, command line tool for uh, spitting out a bunch of data files to feed into some other tool. Well, the code in the model, the thing that actually generates the weather data has to change not at all. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's, I mean, I really feel like this is crazy awesome. And then on top of that, even the code for doing the UI, um, I, I have not yet played with, but I am very interested to begin playing with Electron. So I don't know if you're familiar with that at all. No. So it's basically a, um, an unholy alliance between Node and uh, Chromium, right? So it's it's the Node runtime and a Chromium window. But, you know, so you write in JavaScript and you're writing, you're manipulating effectively the DOM, is my understanding. Um, but you've got the Node runtime behind it, so you can do things like create native executables and access the file hmm. system in a rich way and all this stuff. And... I've done some preliminary experimenting, experimenting of, and many, many other people have done far more than I have, that it looks really promising. Startup times are very, very low. I wrote a hello world, closure script, and this isn't Electron, it's Node, but took that and compiled it into Node native executable, and the startup time on my laptop, for whatever that's worth, was, I want to say, 70 milliseconds. It was, it was decent, right? It was actually something yeah. along the lines of what you would expect from a for a command lineup. Anyway, so I, sorry, I took over the conversation. I didn't mean to do that, but I'm kind of excited about this, the, the fact that we have these two first class runtimes that we can leverage in different ways and in different contexts from the same language. Yeah, you know what I, what I did? Uh, I experimented when ClojureScript first came out because it was, a, it was a, kind of the first instance of a Clojure compiler written in Clojure or at least something from Rich. And um, I, one of the things I did was I experimented with Trying to target ClojureScript to Elisp for Emacs, <laughs> so you could write, so you could write ClojureScript code and like you know compile it down to Emacs Elisp files and actually script Emacs with ClojureScript, which I thought would have been cool. And I got I got as far as the 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 annoying thing about the Clojure, at least at the time, the ClojureScript compiler was it very quickly gets into using uh, Def protocols, Def records, and Def types, mm-hmm. and so I got I got it mostly working and compiling up until the point where I needed to start modeling those things in Elisp, and I was like, nah, I don't know if I have the patience <laughs> for this, but yeah, I mean, 
it's interesting uh, having JavaScript and J the JVM and I don't know other platforms that you could you could extend the closure philosophy to would be kind of cool. Yeah, it is pretty awesome. Um, a totally random thing you just remind me of. Today I discovered, I'm using air quotes here, it's been there a long time, but that Emacs has a uh, full-on terminal emulator that, and I'm not talking about eShell or the, the rather weak um, shell, but like a full-on terminal emulator. It's powerful enough to run Vim. <laughs> uh, so you can wow. fire up an Emacs window and have Vim running inside of it. It's pretty pretty surreal. Anyway. Um, sorry, that was completely random and nothing to do with the very, very interesting things that you've been working on. Um, so I kind of, so I, I got a bunch of things I want to ask you about yet, but I think I want to, I want to steer it back to, uh, the book. I mean, it's, it's a short book, which I really like. I mean, if you, you've been around long enough, you probably remember the days when if a computer book wasn't heavy enough to like cause near fatal injury if it fell off a shelf and hit you on the head, then nobody would buy it, right? And yeah. uh, I think one of the great things about a lot of the closure books out there is that they're not 500 pages, right? And so, you know, your book at, what did you say it was, 38 like pages? 31, yeah. yeah. It's awesome. I think that's fantastic. Um, so um, I think that also helps in a conversation like this where we have an hour and we can actually touch on all the major points. But I wanted to loop back and 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 see if there's anything else that um, that you think we should we should mention to people um, about the book. Mm, that's a good question. I should probably have something to say. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I like you said, it's a short book. I mean, uh, you know, we kind of talked about uh, the meat of it. There's a couple of different examples I go through. There's a little bit of introduction about the polymorphic tools enclosure. Um, I'm not sure... There's anything else that's jumping out to me, okay. unless there's something that you. No, no, not at all. I think. I mean, I really think it's a very nice, self-contained uh, uh, piece of work, and definitely recommend people. Out. Well, cool. Um, well, uh, then there's a few other things we could talk about, but I think we may have to save those for another day. Uh, we'll see, because I I always like to leave space um, in the episode for. Anything. I mean, we generally have a primary topic, and obviously today was the book, but um, I always like to leave space in the episode for anything else that the uh, that the guest would, would like to talk about. So, I mean, interesting things you've been working on, stuff you're excited about, or just things that you think are important to talk about. Do you have anything uh, anything along those lines that you would like to discuss today? I mean, something something I've, I've been thinking about lately, and it's probably a larger topic than maybe we could really do justice to at this point, but... And it's not necessarily closure related, but I uh, I kind of got kicked off on this uh, exploration in the past few years uh, because I was just kind of like looking at the state of software engineering in general and thinking, why is it so difficult? Why 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 is it that many companies you go and you you work at it seems like uh, everybody has a different process for developing software. Oftentimes they're not always effective you know projects still end up being late they end up being over budget and i so i just kind of started doing this soul searching about like what is software engineering and what are what other kinds of engineering out there like what what kind of processes do they use i mean is there something that we could learn from a, a different uh practice of engineering and uh so i i i kind of started off on this journey looking at a, a few different resources and and um 
ended up a lot of times at Richard Gabriel's website. Um, he gave a, he gave a talk at Closure West. Actually, I think it was the first Closure West conference. Um, and then there are some other things he's written that are really interesting. I saw a talk by Glenn Vanderberg. This is also online you can find about software engineering. And then also, like, uh, I think it was actually uh, Donald Knuth's Turing Award lecture. He talked about the relationship between science, engineering, and art, which was really interesting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of got set off on this path about, like, I, I mean, I had been told in college science creates a body of knowledge, engineering applies it to solve problems within constraints. Like that was, that was the definition of engineering. But uh, in particular, Richard Gabriel's talk, even Glenn Vanderberg's talk, um, they, they both kind of uh, hit on this same topic that actually uh, many times engineering precedes science and discovers something that then later science um, systematizes or something like that. And um, it, Richard Gabriel has a really interesting uh, talk slash paper that, that he's given um, called Better Science Through Art, which is which is really fascinating. I, I found it really fascinating to read. And just in it, he kind of develops this idea that science, engineering, and art really all use the same process. And it's, it's really about disciplined noticing. Hmm. You know, an artist has, uh, develops a skill of noticing things in a disciplined way. And representing them, and, and engineers as well, and scientists ha all have kind of this at their core the same idea of discipline noticing. It's a really interesting, um, interesting talk. Yeah, that is interesting, and you know, um, brings together three of the things I'm interested in. Obviously, we talk about art on the show. Um, yeah, we describe ourselves oftentimes as computer scientists, but I am by education an engineer, and actually think of myself more of a software engineer uh, than, a, than a computer scientist, certainly. Um, so what's your take on all this then? Like, I mean, I, I don't, um, not to put words in your mouth, but my guess would be that you would say that it doesn't really make sense to talk about the question of whether what you and I do for our jobs is a science, is engineering, or is an art. It just doesn't... It might, I mean, it, well, actually, it might. I mean, I, it depends on, on how you view those three disciplines. And, and I, I, think, I don't think Richard Gabriel's point is necessarily that they're the same thing, but they're kind of different approaches that have kind of a similar thing at the core. But, but no, I mean, I think it does matter. And one of the reasons, uh, one of the reasons I got kicked, kind of kicked off on this exploration, and then one of the places I kind of got to was, I feel like my experience of writing software is much more creative, much more exploratory. Um, I don't necessarily know where I'm going, or, or I may go a certain place and then come back and then go somewhere else. And so there's like kind of a circuitous path that I take to actually find where I'm going. And it, there's echoes of that in Agile methodology where the idea is that um, you know requirements will change. Sometimes you don't actually know what you want to do or what's possible to, until you actually start. And so you kind of get there iteratively. And, and I, you know, thinking through all that, I'm thinking, well, what, you know, what, I mean, what, what engineering methodologies do we have for writing software and do they match with that? Like if, if, if software, if writing software is essentially a creative act that has more in common with like actually writing a book where you're writing and rewriting and there's an iterative thing, you may throw sections out and you write new sections. Does it make sense to think of it as like a science or engineering kind of a thing? Uh, I don't know that anybody 
today necessarily thinks we can start at the beginning of a project and create a Gantt chart and expect that that's going to work until the end of the project and everything's going to work perfectly that way. But but I think there are still I, th I think there was still maybe a mismatch between how we view and manage software production versus what what the reality of it is. At least in my experience, is a more creative kind of thing. Oh yeah, I totally agree with the, that it being creative. I mean, I, I think in, in and of itself, the following is proof of that. Um, the number of times that I have solved a significant work problem while asleep. Mm -hmm. or in the shower, or running, is way higher than 10. <laughs> and it might even go as high as, you know, 50% of the projects I've ever worked on have had, um, you, you know, my contribution would not have been what it was without a moment like that. And and to me, that just points out that there is a creative aspect to it, an important creative aspect, certainly. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it could be it could be different person to person, how they approach it and, and it may be different problem to problem i mean i i don't know if if my job was essentially to recreate the same system over and over and over like, like imagine i was con i was constructing houses and i had a design and like i'm i'm stamping out that same design over and over and over like i i would have a much better ability to estimate how long it's going to take i'd have a much better understanding of what are the kind of things i'm going to run into you know how to actually plan that out and manage that. You're you're more interested in in the efficiency of the process and getting these things stamped out. For me, my, um, I feel like my job more often is like doing new things every day, like that I've never done before. Like you know, we have React and Elasticsearch, or we're going to connect them in this way, which we've never done before. And like, what are the implications? I feel like we're creating su such complex systems these days that you really almost have to take a more empirical approach than. Um, an a analytic approach, I guess, uh, where you, from the outset you look at this, this thing, you say, this is the system, these are going to be the performance characteristics, and if we make this change to the thing, it's going to cause this, this effect. I don't know that we can necessarily do that so easily with these the complex systems that I work on. I feel like it's a more empirical thing. You have to like make a change and measure it and see how it affects things and then maybe tune it a little more. And It's a more exploratory process, and so, yeah, I, I, I wonder whether uh, at times, we're we're kind of viewing the the software development process in the wrong light. But it, but it, it may it, but like I said, it may be different. I mean, maybe maybe for some people, it's like uh, their job is much more creating the same things over and over, and they have a better understanding versus doing new things every day. And I, I think at the very least, our approach to understanding the process and managing the process should should be flexible enough to see that those are two different things and we have to like expect that something that's more exploratory is going to have to be more of a, um, I don't know, you're not going to know everything up front mm -hmm. uh, and, and you need to expect that. Whereas something that may maybe have a better handle on how to do, you would manage differently. Yeah. So did you see the talk by, I forget his name. There was a guy from uh, JPL. He gave a talk at the, this most recent strange of 2016. Did you happen to catch that? I don't remember. Do you remember the title? Uh, I don't, but it was something along the lines of, you know, lessons from waterfall or some something related. Anyway, I'll just summarize briefly, and then we'll post a link to the talk, and uh, maybe along the way you'll remember you've seen it or not. But his observation was that, you know, obviously there's um, Agile, whatever that means to whomever, 
um, in that's sort of a modern, considered to be a modern software practice. And there's Waterfall, which is considered to be an antiquated uh, um, software mm-hmm. practice. But really, his observation was that um, there's a risk tolerance spectrum. That's one of the elements that goes into project planning. And, you know, he's at JPL. They're working on projects from NASA. You know, they're writing software that has to work exactly one time over the course of 30 right. seconds in space. And if you get it wrong, a half billion dollar artifact is destroyed, right? Mars lander smashed into the surface or whatever. Versus, you know, the soft launch of your um, your website that sells, you know, earmuffs for kittens, right? Like you can get that wrong, <laughs> right? And you're not going to go out of business. You're not out half a billion dollars. It's not like you can never do it again. And so there's this this element of risk tolerance. And he said, look, you know, it's important. And this is, I think, what you were saying is it's important to understand where you are on that spectrum so that you can pick methodologies that are appropriate and some of the aspects of what um, some people would say is a heavyweight or 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 over-engineered process are actually about uh, appropriate risk mitigation for high-risk projects, right? Like having a big plan right. and having a testing plan that's done before you go you know, into production, right? These things are important for certain types of projects. I think that's very much congruent with what you were saying. Yeah, there's actually, there was a, there's an article by Tom DeMarco called Software Engineering, an idea whose time has come and gone with a question mark at the end um, that was in uh, IEEE Software in 2009. And he, he said kind of a similar thing. I mean, he, he, he said um, that a lot of times control over a software project is something that people are concerned about, but he gives an example of like if you have a project that's going to cost a million dollars and produce one million and one hundred thousand dollars of value, you definitely want to control that very tightly. But if you have a project that's going to cost a million dollars and it's going to produce fifty million dollars of value, you don't you're not so much concerned about control and efficiency there, uh, and so you you maybe manage it differently. And so he yeah that was a, that's an interesting articles well i think he hits on some of the same points cool uh well as you rightfully um said this might be a topic that we could uh spend more than what might be an appropriate amount of time um on on this particular episode of the show so um i will uh i will invite you back we should talk about this and and other things and sealing wax and however that goes <laughs> um uh, some other time but um yeah, but assuming that you think we've done that topic justice in this space anyway, uh, maybe we should move on to the final question. What do you say? Sure. Okay. Well, um, our final question is the same as always. It is a question to our guest about. Uh, the question is, what advice would you like to share with our audience? This could be any kind of advice that you maybe you've received or maybe you like to give, but something in the form of advice. What do you have for us? I think I think the advice I would give something that I've found useful for me is um, to pursue interest for the love of it. You know, I I I I have found several times in my career that something that I just found interesting and I was like reading about or playing with in my spare time ended up becoming important actually in my day to day job. And I and I think especially if you look at software as kind of a creative pursuit. Um, reading lots of other people's code, writing lots of code, being exposed, even uh, interdisciplinary ideas outside of software um, can be useful and help you improve your craft 
as a as a software developer. So I, I think being open to ideas from other fields and and just pursuing things just for the love of it. If you find something interesting, pursue it, and it, I, I I think you'll find it'll become valuable later on. Totally agree. Uh, excellent advice, in my opinion. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I haven't—I don't remember the last time we saw each other. Were you? Were you? I—I I am so bad. Like I've been to Strange Loop, and they all kind of blur together yeah. in my mind. You know what I mean? Like I can't tell whether it. In fact, I was talking to um, to Jason Gilman, and I'm like, oh man, I'm sorry, I missed you at Strange Loop. He's like, what are you talking about? We we <laughs> sat like we next talk. to each other and talked for like yeah. 15 minutes. Oh, like, like oh, I thought that was in 2014. <laughs> anyway, so I don't. I'm probably about to do the same thing as you. Were you at Strange Loop this year? I, I was not at Strange okay. Loop this year. No, I've been I've been at every con though. I, I don't know if you were at the last con. I was. Yeah. I was super busy, but yeah. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going this yeah. year? I am. Yeah. I I am on a perfect attendance streak. In fact, I think they should give out perfect attendance awards to those of us who've come to every con. I have every shirt. In fact, uh, it's kind of embarrassing because I mean, we look back at family pictures of vacations and stuff you know from like four or five years i'm like wearing a closure con shirt you know when we're at disney world or whatever but if they're some of my favorite shirts but no i mean i've so yeah i i've it, we might have run into each other at, at the last con. i think would be the last time yeah. well anyway if you're going to be at this one i will too and so it'll be great to see you there but it certainly was great to uh to see you uh, or to talk to you today um, if you do go to the conch by the way bring that uh, conch number one shirt I'll bring mine and we can confuse people even further by wearing it right. standing next to each nice. other uh, but yeah thanks so much for taking the time super interesting stuff the book is excellent highly recommend people buy it um, you, you won't regret it it's, it's a good read um, and like I said you know not much money not much time how could you go wrong so um, awesome job on that uh, but uh, we will go ahead and close it down Thanks again for coming, and this has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic and we provide consulting services around it, Clojure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, Cognitech.com podcast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Paul Stadig on Twitter at PJ Stadig. That's P J S T A D I G. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.